0: Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balcaran. Um, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Raj Balkharan for the podcast. Also, um, and more importantly, I have with me today um, Dr. Andrea Akri, who is um, um, assistant professor at uh, PSL University in Paris. Uh, he is co-editor, uh, uh, along with uh, Peter Chirac of SOAS, Of a fascinating uh, two volume uh, work called The Creative South Buddhist and Hindu Art in Medieval Maritime Asia. And this is just out 2022 um, by IC's Publishing. Andrea, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Raj.
0: So tell me something, if someone's uh, glancing at this, and perhaps they're not a specialist or a generalist, perhaps uh, they're just um, an interested member of the public, maritime Asia, um, medieval one might get a sense of, perhaps talk, say a word about medieval, but, and say a word especially about maritime.
1: Sure. So by medieval, usually we understand the, the kind of European medieval the ages, right, The period after the, the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, for India, we have a, a rather different, not so different, actually, a time frame. But basically, uh, by medieval, I mean the post-Gupta period. So the the age, uh, so-called Indian feudalism, so after the fall of the Gupta Empire. Or we can also say uh, the uh, millennium before the Colombian exchanges, so the discovery of America's and we can actually, uh, I mean, there is a lot of interest now in this category of the medieval, applied on a global scale, and especially to to Eurasia. And I think we can also apply it to maritime Asia, which is a, a region, of course a geographical region. But more than that, I think it is really kind of we can visualize it not as a space, but as a network uh, of people, you know, objects, etc, going from the Indian subcontinent. Uh, east uh, to the South China Sea, so including the part of the Indian Ocean, the Bay of Bengal and uh, and with its geographical pivot, uh, insular Southeast Asia, that is nowadays Indonesia uh, and Malaysia. Uh, so it was, of course, a very important area for connectivity. We usually think about the, the Silk Roads, uh, overland Silk Roads that connected uh, India to China via Central Asia, but uh, actually... There were other roads, trade ro- routes, much more than trade routes actually. A lot was going on, and uh, which really favored connectivity uh, even more uh, than than the overland routes. So I think it makes sense to consider this is you know uh, region, this area, as a coherent, um, you know, we can say ecumenic, where indeed uh, interesting phenomena of exchange uh, took place. For instance, the, the transfer of you know Sanskrit language and culture, uh, Indian religions, Buddhism, Shaivism, etc. Uh, this work, uh,
0: this uh, collection of contributions, certainly makes at least to my mind in my uh, area um, hitherto uh, unrealized connections uh, in in this in this region. How did this volume
1: begin? Well, uh, it had uh, a long genesis. Actually, uh, there was a previous volume, uh, an edited volume also, which I published in 2016, also at ICS Press. And and that volume was entitled Esoteric Buddhism in Medieval Maritime Asia, Networks of Masters, Texts, and Icons. So in that period, I was a fellow, a research fellow at, uh, at ICS, at the Nalanda Srivijaya Center. And uh, this center based in Singapore was really meant to reconnect uh, Southeast Asia and India. So the, the kind of uh, you know uh, Buddhist uh, kingdoms of Sumatra, the Malay Peninsula with the uh, institutions of higher learning of, of Bengal, of the, of the, of the uh, let's say the actual Bihar. And so I, I also was expo- exposed to this to this new wave of uh, scholarship of global, and maritime history, and especially intra asian connection, the work of Tan Sam Sen Sam and many others. And so I really wanted to apply this, this exciting uh, new perspective, trans-regional, you know, emphasis to the study of Buddhism, and especially the uh, transfer of tantric or esoteric Buddhism. And uh, so this volume uh, uh, was published, and then uh, there were a couple of summer programs uh, organized by Peter Sharok with whom i've been collaborating uh since uh, a number of e- several years already and uh, these programs were really meant to kind of uh, develop this new perspective and bring to southeast asia scholars from southeast asia from south asia and also from uh, further afield from europe uh, the us meet together and study uh especially art history so the art history of of Java uh, and uh, Cambodia, etc., and so this is a kind of, you know, the result, the concrete result of these meetings and of this uh, group of scholars, young and, and more senior, uh, with the, let's say sharing the, the idea, the overarching uh, idea and research agenda of studying art in this case, but also text, for example, Hindu and Buddhist text from a, a transregional perspective, maritime focused. Especially.
0: How is the volume organized and what are the different parts?
1: All right. So this is actually uh, uh, two volumes, um, both of which have been published. So the, the first volume uh, is actually more, let's say, um, Pan-Asian um, in nature. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, subtitle is Intra-Asian Transfers and Mainland Southeast Asia. So the, the first uh, uh, three articles, the first three chapters are indeed Pan-Asian. For instance, the first one, from Malaya to Tamil and back, the Transmigration of the Eight-Armed Armoga Pasha by Ian Sinclair is a very exciting chapter uh, and which really uh, espouses perfectly our philosophy. That is, um, it shows that uh, one, Tantric form, one particular form of the Tantric Diti Amogapasha uh, with eight arms, uh, didn't come to Indonesia from uh, India, but actually the other way around. It was uh, elaborated, let's say, it had its genesis in the um, in the Malay Peninsula or insular Southeast Asia at quite an early uh, period actually, and it was exported, it ended up in the, in the Indian mainland, in probably in Bodhgaya. And then uh, it was re-imported to East Java much later in the 12th, 13th century uh, because there was a gap in Java. So this, this particular form was unknown for many centuries after in the, what we call the central Javanese period, which ended more or less uh, at the beginning of the 10th century. And so it's, it's uh, it kind of exemplifies what we call a pizza effect. Uh, the kind of, you know, we, uh, an element that was exported uh, and then it came back modified and it was re reintroduced and re-adopted, adopted, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in a cha- changed form. So uh, this is really a, a very exciting chapter for us. And uh, the second uh, chapter by Yuri Koklov, uh, who very sadly passed away uh, one year ago, Uh, It's entitled, In the Footsteps of Amogavajra, Southern Indian Artistic Mode in Tang China and its Transmission to Tibet. Uh, So Yuri, uh, this is actually a chapter that already appeared in a journal, but uh, uh, Yuri worked on a revised and enlarged version. And his thesis is that uh, uh, in the the paintings, Buddhist paintings of the Mogao caves uh, in China, um, scholars have often uh, seen the marks, the features of Tibetan inf- style, you know the Tibetan artistic, artistic style. But uh, Yuri want, wanted to change the narrative and actually found pretty convincing evidence that instead South Indian style uh, is, is um, um, I would say, a South Indian style can be uh, discerned. Uh, in those paintings and especially you could even see the influence of a single hand that is mogavajra this prominent Buddhist masters, master who traveled uh, from India to China and uh, via Sri Lanka, South Asia and Southeast Asia. So this again tells us that uh, the so-called maritime peripheries and South India were more important than, you know, we think uh in in when we talk about buddhism even uh in the in in central asia you know so uh in spite of the of the distance we can still discern some other elements there and this is also quite really in line with our research agenda uh then there is a chapter by uh, peter on heruka mandalas across maritime asia which focuses on this uh, very unique, I would say, um, adoption of the of esoteric Buddhist cult, especially this late phase of tantric Buddhism, uh, revolving around uh, you know warring deities uh, like Heruka, which uh, unlike in in India, uh, in Southeast Asia really uh, seem to have been placed at the center of of important temples. Um, so they really were adopted by by sovereigns. Pretty openly, and uh, and they were very much connected with, uh, so to so to speak, state protection Buddhism. So with uh, with the, the use of of these, um, you know, uh, let's say Buddhist deities and uh, you know magical formulas and rituals, to protect kingdoms and defeat enemies. And then uh, we have other chapters. Just uh, let me see. OK, so the, the second part of the first volume is entitled Transfers and Innovation in Mainland Southeast Asia. And uh, it includes uh, papers focusing, indeed, on this uh, region. The first paper by Gina Kim uh, deals with the goddess Prajna Paramita and esoteric Buddhism uh, during the period of Jayavarman VII, that is the 13th century, uh, 12th 13th century that, uh, uh, I mean, Jayavarman VII is famous for having sponsored these enormous uh, architectural uh, constructions, temples, especially state temples like the Bayon uh, at Angkor. And uh, Jayavarman VII uh, was actually a a Buddhist, uh, although he was also initiated into Shaivism. And uh, uh, this chapter Shows how uh, this Buddhist deity, goddess this Prajna Paramita, was localized, so to speak, adapted to the pantheon uh, that was dominant in Cambodia, in the Khmer domains, and uh, and so also used by uh, Jayavarman. Then we have uh, a chapter by Swati Chamburkar. Uh, dealing with uh, uh, dancers, musicians, ascetics, etc. So the depiction of these uh, of scenes of of uh, you know uh, let's say perform performative arts uh, in uh, uh, Shiva temples in the Khmer domains, which is uh, uh, a rather scantily studied subject, and uh, and uh, swati actually argues that uh, there were. Uh, pretty unique developments uh, in, in the Khmer domains, uh, and also inferences from um, probably South India. And uh, uh, she also makes a point for, let's uh, say, um, studying these, these visual you know, documents, reliefs, uh, for instance, uh, in order to uh, complement, to enrich the, the picture we can get from the study of the ancient uh, texts, like inscriptions, uh, which often do not tell much about the actual social realities, uh, you know, um, uh, they tend to be quite prescriptive in nature, quite actually, sorry, to present an idealized view. Then there is another chapter uh, by um, Swati, again, then another Indian colleague, Shivani Kapoor, myself and Olivier Couneau. And this chapter is devoted to the uh, libraries, uh, the small buildings that, that have been usually called libraries uh, by scholars, which can be found in the in Khmer temples, uh, usually placed in the southeastern corner. And uh, now these small temples actually don't really look like uh, libraries at all. In fact, they are the only structures in, in Khmer architecture with the, um, uh, holes, uh, and uh, they are built in such a way that uh, smoke can, uh, you know, exit um, from these holes. So other scholars have hypothesized that instead of libraries, they could actually have been uh, fire shrines, and uh, so we we uh, bring some, you know, we kind of read. Uh, uh, the evidence uh, in a new way and we actually argue that uh, in origin they could have been libraries but then they could have also been, um, sorry I actually made a mistake, the other way around. So we argue that these uh, could have been fire shrines but uh, they could have also been used to um, store manuscripts um, because manuscripts can be actually uh, hand and uh, smoke is used to, to you know, uh, protect them uh, from insects, etc. But what it is important is that the southeastern direction is the direction uh, devoted to Agni, so the deity of fire, and uh, uh, the architectural evidence actually speaks in favor of their identification as primarily fire shrines. We have uh, then uh, three papers uh, by Mai Bui Diolin, Maya Chau, and Tran Puong, um devoted to uh, medieval Champa, so corresponding to the southern part of actual Vietnam. The first paper deals with the dancing Shiva, so this very, uh, let's say, popular iconographic motif, uh, especially in Champa, uh, and uh, uh, this this chapter actually brings out the kind of unique local developments uh, that we can see uh, in that region. Then the second uh, chapter uh, of the tree is uh, devoted to the colossal Tracheo pedestal, uh, which uh, uh, is a very um, a gigantic uh, object artifact that probably was meant to uh, uh, be a pedestal for a linga, but it is not sure, and uh, this this pedestal uh, is, uh, there are reliefs on it, uh, especially um, a relief focusing on the Ramayana, and uh, so uh, uh, Maya Chau um, discussed these reliefs in association with Kartli uh, culture uh, in the Khmer domains, and also is java in china because we know that there were contacts between those regions uh, and uh, and so it is it actually makes sense to uh, study this material not in isolation but also compare it uh, to other material uh, which is probably related the final uh, paper is by uh, tranki puong and it deals with the chronological interrelationship between some newly found inscriptions and the temple architecture of Champa. So it is uh, uh, an interesting and uh, innovative study in that it uh, uh, kind of brings together art history. uh, And so the kind of very difficult task of dating temples with the available uh, epigraphic evidence uh, matching the dates of inscriptions and temples, uh, which is of course uh, very useful. To date, these sites. Thank you for yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, no, no, sorry. This this was volume one. Uh, Perhaps I can more briefly uh, also give an overview of the second volume. Uh, The second volume is uh, devoted to Odisha and Java. Uh, The first part from Odisha to Java uh, mainly deals with Odisha. And uh, the first uh, chapter by Sonali Dingra is entitled Savior at the Time of Death Amogapasha's Cultic Role in Late First Millennium, Odishan Buddhist Sites. And it is a study which uh, highlights the, the role of, of this tantric form of Amogapasha, especially in connection with uh, funerary practices uh, in, uh, in Odisha, in the famous sites of Ratnagiri. And uh, and Udayagiri, etc., which were uh, uh, you know very uh, important Buddhist sites uh, during the medieval period. And uh, uh, the second chapter is uh, on the circulation of Buddhist mandalas in Maritime Asia, epigraphic and iconographic evidence from Odisha and Java. And so this chapter really takes us ideally from Odisha from this. Buddhist sites where esoteric uh, icons uh, have been found, uh, probably related to esoteric mandalas. In fact, there are some inscriptions, uh, dharani, or so mantras, which are clearly esoteric in nature. Uh, to Java, to Central and East Java, from the 8th to 11th century, where uh, uh, you know, similar mandalas, let's say the Sarvata-Tagata-Tattva-Sangraha, the maha uh, probably inspired uh, monuments and the iconographic programs of, uh, of these uh, Buddhist sites. Then the second part it really focuses on Java. Uh, it, it, it is quite rich. It contains uh, six, uh, sorry, uh, seven uh, chapters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The first one uh, is Entire Scheme of Borobudur by Hudaya Kandah Jaya. Uh, it kind of builds on the previous work by the author, uh, who is interpreting uh, Borobudur in the light of, uh, for instance, uh, numerology, certain numeric correspondences between uh, the the stages or the number of stages um, and uh, other, uh, you know, elements, architectural elements of the monument, and uh, the 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 mandalas, for instance, the Mahavairochana. Mandala, as uh, described by uh, these this prominent masters like uh, Moga Vajra and Vajra Buddhi. And so uh, he argues that uh, basically we can find uh, also in the iconographic program of the monument trace of, of these translocal connections, transregional contacts, and of the, of the monks who traveled from India to China and vice versa. The other chapter, so the, the, sorry, the, the following chapter is uh, on the so-called Chandipembakaran uh, at Ratuboko. Ratuboko is a prominence uh, found in Central Java, which was uh, strongly associated with Buddhism from, for much of its history, uh, until roughly the middle of the ninth century. After which it becomes uh, dominantly Shiva, and uh, he, uh, sorry, the author is Saran Sub-Santi-Wongse, and uh, he argued that this, this uh, um, we can say, a, a temple, we only have the foundations, uh, which has been interpreted as a fire pit, is actually a gigantic pit uh, not far from the entrance, uh, it was not a fire pit at all, but rather uh, an enormous, uh, let's say, vase to contain uh, a body tree. And uh, uh, in order to, to you know, arrive at this conclusion, uh, the author uh, compared the, the architectural elements with similar uh, elements in Sri Lankan monasteries, uh, most of which have actually uh, you know, a place for, for the sacred Bodhi tree. And so it makes sense that uh, since we know that there were connections between Sri Lanka and Ratuboko. Uh, for instance, an inscription mentions the Abayagiri Vasin monks, so the monks from Abayagiri Vihara, who established uh, a kind of dependence in Rathuboko. So it makes sense, actually, to reinterpret this this uh, um, part of the site that has always puzzled uh, archaeologists. The following chapter, by Michael Gauvin, is uh, uh, devoted to the tantric Buddhist deity Trilokya Vijaya and to its cult, uh, especially in Java, studied through the lens of epigraphica and sculptural remains. Uh, so uh, the author really, I think, he included pretty much every uh, statue known uh, to have survived uh, of this uh, Trilokya Vijaya uh, from Java, uh, either in Java or kept in foreign collections, museums, to show that indeed uh, this, this type of uh, esoteric cults uh, were popular in Java, which, which has yielded uh, a very high number, relatively high number, let's say, compared to India, for example, of this meta, especially, uh, stages. And uh, and uh, besides the stages, he also discusses the epigraphic evidence that is the mantra of many uh, actually, uh, mantras and haranis have been recovered, and uh, they were probably related to to trikaya or similar kind of protective uh, Buddhism. Uh, the following chapter by Mimi Savitri deals with the social context of the Central Javanese temples of Kalasan and Prambanan. So, one temple Buddhist Kalasan, and the other uh, Hindu, that is Shiva, from the eighth to the 9th century. So basically, by reading the inscriptions recovered near the sites, and by studying certain uh, architectural features of the monument, the author uh, shed light on the the, the the social context. So the, the artisans, for example, the patrons, uh, the monks, the, the masters who uh, ordered the kings to build uh, these temples. Actually, the first you know uh, impellers were. Uh, the masters, the Buddhist masters themselves, rather than the kings. And this tells us something interesting about the the society uh, in that period, of course, and also something interesting about the temples. Uh, The following chapter by Roy Jordan, uh, who sadly passed away uh, a couple of years ago, is uh, entitled Sita is Ravana's daughter Achandi Prambanar. so actually this was the, the very final draft of this chapter was sa- submitted by the author one week uh, before he passed away and uh, so we actually dedicate this this volume to him as well as uh, to Yuri and Roy was uh, was a, a very um, fine art historian uh, of, of Java uh, in spite of the fact that he was trained uh, as an anthropologist he wrote much about uh, central Javanese temples. And in his uh, last article, he uh, described a very peculiar scene of, of the reliefs uh, of the Ramayana in Prambanan uh, that seemed to depict uh, Sita as the daughter of Ravana, rather than the, the wife of Rama abducted by Ravana. And uh, he, uh, this chapter contains an elaborate discussion, of the release and also uh, referenced to other uh, areas regions of Asia where exactly the same motif uh, was known uh, in Central Asia for example or uh, for instance in the in the literary culture of West Java so still in 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 Java itself and so this actually highlights again the in a way the creative role uh, of, uh, of Java uh, who appropriated this motif and, and kind of localized, localized it according to the, to the local social, um, you know, um, how to say, uh, to the local uh, prevalent uh, uh, norms uh, of the society. The uh, following chapter by Jeffrey Sandberg deals with the, uh, the, the architecture of the Temple of Prambana, the Shaiva Temple. Of Prambanan, and argues that uh, the way it is built, uh, it was probably meant to be uh, a gigantic uh, reservoir of water, and this is a theory that was elaborated by Roy Jordan himself uh, in uh, in a book published in 1996. And according to Jeff, uh, there are other there are actually extra architectural features that were not considered by Roy, which uh, support his hypothesis, uh, that is that uh, this, this that the enormous courtyard around the, the temple was uh, filled with water uh, during the, the monsoon season, so the, the rainy season, not much, but probably just um, 10, 20 centimeters, enough to, uh, let's say, render uh, this, this uh, temple complex, made by three main temples, look like three lingas arising from the primordial ocean. So it would have, uh, have a very important symbolic uh, function. Uh, and uh, he uh, also compares the, this, uh, this temple complex to similar, well, I wouldn't say similar, but he compares it at least to uh, a site uh, called Qubalspin in Cambodia, And uh, what is shared, the feature that is shared by both sides, uh, in spite of the fact that they are very different, is the the peculiar um, presence of architectural features, let's say, uh, beneath uh, the water surface, as in the case of Balspin. That is the concept of sanctification of water by lingas, for example, uh, or reliefs uh, of deities. And uh, according to Jeff, this was kind of Uh, symbolic uh, idea that allowed uh, two civilizations uh, far from each other to elaborate similar, say, responses uh, and, uh, you know, uh, around this concept of sanctification uh, of water. The final chapter is uh, by Hadi Sidomulio on the archaeological data from uh, Mount Penangungan in East Java. Now Mount Penangungan is a very exciting uh, site. Uh, it is one of the uh, highest mountains uh, in Java, in East Java, and uh, it is actually um, full of archaeological sites, especially small temples built, uh, we would say, at the really at the really the period which marks the end of the Hindu Buddhist kingdom of Majapahit uh, in Java, so the very end. Of the Hindu Buddhist regime, and uh, uh, up to uh, a few years ago, not these sites were known. Of course, were excavated, but many more were not known uh, until a fire developed on the mountain, and which, ex- which burnt the, the vegetation and exposed a, a really uh, much wider uh, pattern. You know, uh, uh, roads. Uh, uh, temples, uh, etc. So these uh, these sites have been surveyed, and uh, the result of this very recent research is uh, described uh, in this chapter, which really opens new vistas on the on our knowledge of the of the history uh, of the late uh, period of Majapahit and of Hindu Buddhist uh, architecture in Java.
0: Yeah, this was Thank you, thank you for. Um... providing that uh, comprehensive list of precies on these very rich contributions. And so if we can pan out a little bit about um, the volume as a whole, the the volumes, I should say, Um, during this process, what sort of overarching themes or ideas or surprises uh, occurred to you uh, as this was being put together?
1: Well, let's say um, as for uh, surprises, definitely I would say the this, this you know new elements of east to west transfers. Uh, for instance, the Amogba Pasha traveling from the Malay Peninsula to India, uh, or uh, again uh, the fact that we can pinpoint you know uh, influences. Uh, so precisely that, for example, we can discern the, the hand of Amoghavajra you know, in in these Central Asian paintings, or uh, before us, another chapter by uh, Peter in another volume argues uh, these this monks and pilgrims who traveled and who brought with them texts, and these texts influenced, for instance, the iconography of Borobudur. We can think about Prajna, who uh, supposedly traveled from Orisha, Orissa to China and then stopped in Southeast Asia. And it seems that he introduced a new text there. And, you know, uh, the, the architects of Borobudur used it to create his unique illustration uh, of the, of the Gandavyuha of the Badrachari, etc. So these are rather striking, uh, let's say, revelations. Uh, of course, much is, uh, let's say, Hypothetical, we cannot be 100% sure, but uh, there is circumstantial evidence that actually allows us to to make these inferences, to to trace the movement uh, of these agents, you know, across really vast uh, swathes of territory. uh, Most more often maritime, rather than overland. And this is you know we we are not denying the the kind of you know the the realization that the old par all we can say is already thirty forty years old, the paradigm of localization. So you know that according to which the elements of Indian culture were exported uh, to Cambodia or Java, and then we were localized. So they were adapted, right, adopted by the local people change them, uh, would change them and transform them and, again, recast them. This is perfectly valid, you know. We're definitely not denying that. But we also want to uh, pinpoint the fact that this was not a one-way traffic, uh, although there is much more evidence about the transfer from India to the so-called periphery. But I think there is also evidence of, you know, uh, that the contrary was the case, and it was in any case multi-centric. And also the very concept of periphery doesn't really work anymore. These peripheries were centers in their own terms, where people traveling from India to Java, for example, inscriptions say so to, uh, for pilgrimage, you know, to, to uh, 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 participate in the cults that were going on in the temples. And, and China also became, was no longer a periphery of Buddhism during the time, era became the center. Manjushri was born in China, you know, according to Chinese Buddhists and not in India. So this is quite, you know, that quite changes the picture and uh, teaches us that we have to also pay attention to these translocal dynamics, to the big picture. And uh, I think studying this material really was uh, eye opening uh, for me in many respects.
0: Absolutely fascinating. Certainly periphery is a function of perception, a perspective, I should say, whether it's a scholarly perspective or a cultural perspective, an ideological perspective, um, um, a system of power. Um, um, And, uh, you know, um, there at times is uh, an internalized um, conception or conceit that, you know, uh, we are now a global village and we, we now travel everywhere, but uh, wanderlust and, 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 and craving for other cultures has always existed and, and, and they, clearly there's been an enormous amount of cultural exchange across the, the millennia and I think it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to have concrete data to evidence that um, supposition or that um, intuition exactly um,
1: if, if you allow me to say one thing is that please anything you'd like we, we think that the sea is the barrier with, you know, our academic disciplines study, you know, India in the subcontinent, South Asia, you know, it's a separate entity from Southeast Asia and then East Asia. And so we specialize in our disciplines. And we, so we, we do not really realize that uh, to travel from South India or Eastern India to Sumatra, for example, the Malay Peninsula, really, it's much easier you know, it takes less time than traveling, for example, from Tamil Nadu to Kashmir. And yet, you know, we always take for granted that these are two separate regions and we have no problem in studying, you know, movement in South Asia. But we kind of, you know, we are suspicious when, uh, you know, we, we think about influences, you know, across the Bay of Bengal sometimes. But really, it's, it's Paul Moose, a scholar already in the 30s, actually, uh described this, described this, this fact that the the Indian Ocean connected, really, it was an element of unity and uh, it was easier to travel by sea than overland. And so there is absolutely no uh, excuse to, again, uh, see the history of these two regions of the world as, as, you know, separated and fragmented. And I think it is important to reconnect uh, the history of South and Southeast Asia. And also of China, uh, in the light of this picture of connectivity that we know uh, existed.
0: Fascinating. So um, tell us, uh, let's uh, uh, before we close, just a, a quick question about yourself and your work. Uh, um, is this uh, are these interests uh, also your own uh, or primary research interests, or what do you work on?
1: Well, uh, I would say yes, now they are, but I, I started as, uh, I'm still a philologist, so I started, uh, especially uh, I focused on old Japanese texts, uh, so I tried to marry, let's say, Sanskrit philology and old Japanese philology and studying Shaivism, I actually uh, really took an interest early in my in my uh, academic career uh, in the Shaiva religion and Tantric traditions and then I took an interest also in Southeast Asia, especially Java and Bali. And so I really wanted to comparatively study the development of of Tantric Shaivism in Java and Bali and in India. And this uh, opened my eyes in in many respects. And then my my interest also extended to to other regions, uh, um, you know. And and I really wanted to understand the bigger picture. And so now since already a number of years, I'm also uh, working on uh, the, the circulation of uh, esoteric Buddhism uh, in maritime Asia, Asia sorry, or monsoon Asia. So I'm really working with these, let's say, uh, categories that try to um, go beyond the area studies paradigm. Because I really, I realized they don't work anymore. You know, this this compartmentalization uh, of knowledge, of discipline, of languages, cultures, uh I'm not going denying cultural specificity. I very much remain anchored, you know, when I study all Japanese text within the local framework, but at the same time, there is much more going on, I think, and we really are missing the bigger picture. And many features that we, you, scholars used to think were local, which is a very fuzzy term, by the way. I don't really know, know don't know what is a local, you know, belief or what is the boundary of the local, It right? turned out to be actually translocal, the features maybe that were, came from somewhere else, maybe not from India, you know, maybe from the Austronesian, let's say, migrations, you know, these kind of other cultures, but there is always uh, a, you know, a circulatory element, and so I very much like this connected history approach, and I try to apply it even to, to my very narrow field, if you wish, of uh, Sanskrit and old Japanese philology. That's
0: that's quite a resonant um that's quite a resonant approach. I mean, I've hosted a number of of scholars in a number of subfields in in loosely self-explan studies or Indian religions or, um, and uh, one of the things I i we touch on in a number of the podcasts is really the power of flipping something over or cross pollination or it's it's challenging because uh, for scholars to be scholars we necessarily use this wonderfully incisive slicing and dicing cutting left brain to say to demarcate this from this to specify that from that which period um which you know for etc 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 and that obviously is crucial that's crucial to enterprise of critical engagement and yet uh it's my observation and 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 um perhaps even contention that the most brilliant scholars are the ones who do that well and then move beyond to seeing what can be stitched together right what can we bring together what connections can we make aside from the demarcation the the deconstruction um Anyhow, enough of me pontificating about who knows what. Uh, the, the final question I have for you, Andrea, is um, um, the title. Why is the title The Creative Self?
1: Well, that was actually uh, Peter's idea, uh, which I very gladly, you know, I was happy to accept uh, because uh, we often see the, the South, or so the so-called Southern periphery, Southeast Asia, especially as an adopter. You know, as a region that, again, took, was influenced by India, you know, took certain features, changed them. But we really wanted to, again, flip it over and bring out the creative side of it. The 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 fact that this region innovated. There are actually, you know, uh, examples. We, we always look for Indian prototypes, but there are actually things that are much older in Java. For instance, the depiction the of the Ramayana as a continuous, you know, panel of relief, the Karana, the dense pose on Chandi Prambanan, they're actually earlier than, you know, the earliest Indian uh, uh, examples. And uh, also the zero, the use of the zero in epigraphy, for instance, to to really denote uh, a date. Uh, It comes from, you know, Sumatra and and, uh, the Khmer domains, Uh, a couple of hundreds before, you know, the Indian example. So this tells us that this region uh, actually was, Innovating was actually re, perhaps yeah re elaborating com- concepts coming from elsewhere or maybe creating new ones and then exporting them. So we really wanted to bring out this element which is seldom if ever discussed in in mainstream scholarship. Fascinating. Um, well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Raj. It was a pleasure.
0: For those listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Andrea Acry, uh, who is the uh, Co-editor, along with uh, Peter Sharak of this uh, pair of volumes entitled "The Creative South: uh, Buddhist and Hindu Art in Medieval Maritime Asia." Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um You can feel free to engage uh, the podcast uh, um, posts at uh, on Twitter. Um, at uh, I'm learning I'm learning about social media on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Dr. Uh, I'm at Dr. Raj Bokhran. Um, until next time, keep well. Um, keep safe, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating cultural exchange by sea. (laughs) Take care.